0: Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. We're releasing this bonus episode on National Apple Day. Apples are ubiquitous at this time of year in the Pacific Northwest, and I am personally a big fan. I love eating them. I love baking with them, especially at this time of year when they're fresh from the trees. Today's guest is not just a fan of the apple. James Rich's family has been making cider and growing apples in Britain for centuries. James's first cookbook is a celebration of the fruit and includes both newly created and old family recipes along with beautiful photography. If you're looking to get out of your apple cake rut and want to explore the savory as well as the sweet side of cooking with apples, then this is definitely a book to check out. James visited the Booklarder kitchen in October 2019. Here's James Rich and Apple.
1: Thank you very much. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm from Somerset, which is a super super rural area of the country. Probably the few famous things that come out of Somerset. One is cider, which we'll talk about tonight. It's got a real, really important role. It's played throughout history in that area. Uh, the second thing is cheddar cheese. I don't know whether you've heard of that or not, but that's the that's the second thing that comes out of uh, Somerset. And the third thing is Glastonbury Festival. If anybody is familiar with the music festival there, it's um, apparently the biggest, one of the biggest ones in the world. But I am uh, the son of a cider maker and I went to school in cheddar. So I'm pretty much as Somerset <laughs> as you can get. And my family, we have a cider farm, uh, hard cider as you guys call it here. Uh, down in Somerset, and it was it's been there for over seventy years, but before that, my family come from that specific area, going back hundreds of years. and the first um, mention of us is in sixteen twelve in a book that was written by a priest. and we all live or have lived um, within a ten mile radius of the farm now. They don't move my family. I, when I moved to London to go to university and things, they uh, they were quite shocked at how far I was moving away, and it's only a three-hour drive from Somerset. So, um, so yeah, we've been there for a very, very long time, and we've always been working on the land and um, having the orchards and the uh, another side of farm. And on the side of farm, about fifteen years ago, we um, put in a, uh, a restaurant called the Cider Press, and this is a restaurant that serves the most delicious stews and pies and really homely delicious food and a carvery, a roast dinner on a Sunday. is was, was amazing out in the world. That's where I worked as a teenager and kind of started my kind of love affair with food. And, and we used to get a lot of customers come into the come into the restaurant and we'd be using produce from the farm and produce that was locally sourced. And they would always be asking us how we use cider and apples and, and the produce in, in the food. So I thought, uh, I was having a chat with a chef one day and said, well, how about a lovely, um, like we give out some leaflets or something with recipes in and, and things like that. And that was kind of where the idea for this cookbook started. And that was 15 years ago. So it's been a long time in the making. It's been a really fun project. Uh, what I thought we'd do tonight is, uh, yeah, have a bit of a relaxed conversation about the book and what kind of, what's in there. Also a bit of a kind of, a fun history lesson on apples. I would start talking to you or discuss varieties, but there are thousands and thousands of varieties in, in this country and, and at home. There are um, apparently four and a half thousand varieties you grow here in the US. Which is mad. Uh, in the UK, we're about two and a half, three thousand, and globally there are nearly eight thousand varieties. So I'm not going to say that I've included all of them in the book because it'd be a very, very long book, or maybe multiple volumes. And I actually had, a, I did a, a recipe demonstration a couple of weeks ago and I had a lady come up to me at the um, end and luckily I had my dad with me um, who's way more knowledgeable about this subject obviously having grown up in uh, the cider farm for years and she came up to us with a bag of apples and she said I've just bought a house and we've got apples in the garden what are they and we were like oh, no, in front of everybody about 30 40 people and I thought oh no so we kind of have rifled through and we had a look and dad just said well the only way to know what they are is they're either an eating apple or they're a juicing apple And so he just took a bite out of them and said, well, that one you can eat, that one you can't eat. There you go. That's kind of, um, that's how how you can use them. But kicking off, does anybody know where the very first apple came from? Garden of Eden, of course. Oh, well, of course. Well, actually, actually, that is a contested theory, as as I mentioned in the book, because... We've taken on that kind of story and we've su- suggested that it was an apple that was in the Garden of Eden, but actually the only mention of fruit in the in the story is a fig leaf, the famous fig leaf. So they actually think it's more likely that originally the story was included a fig, and it's just been changed over time. So I'm not going to take that as an answer. And <laughs> about Kazakhstan, they found evidence of apples in the Jordan Valley six and a half thousand years ago, and then uh, before that, they in Kazakhstan and Kazak or what well, well, is now Kazakhstan, of course. And there, even now these days, they have apple tree forests. So there are huge, huge forests, and they're all apple trees. And I'd love to visit them at this time of year because I bet you it would be an amazing experience to walk through the forest and try the fruits and, and and see and see what they were like. But from that kind of area, the kind of Middle East, um, West Asia area, they um, were people obviously discovered them, discovered that they were very um, hardy fruit, and that they were obviously edible and very nutritious. They could be transported quite easily and farmed as well. And from there, it's basically down to the big empires. So obviously, the Roman Empire was just kind of took over the world and all of the other big empires going through the centuries. And they gradually kind of expanded and expanded and expanded. And now they grow pretty much in every single country around the world. bar I think North Pole and South Pole, they are incredibly diverse. And people have been making use of them for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. I talk about it in the book, but I think it's humans and uh, this fruit, we have a very, very kind of strange relationship because we've kind of, it's, they've, it's always ever been there. If you look through, we've all talked about religion and culture and um, history. It's really interesting to see where it pops up. Obviously, these days, we've got a very, very famous technology company based down in the south of here that's kind of uh, dominated the word. But before that, we obviously had, back in England, uh, obviously where I'm from, if you look at things like Royal Coat of Arms, if you look closely at those, you'll kind of see the fruits will start popping up in, in these random places. So they've kind of taken on this um, this kind of iconography that we are really familiar with as people. And I feel that we kind of have a, beyond any other fruit or vegetable, we have this kind of uh, amazing relationship with them that, that they've just kind of always been there and we've kind of taken them under our wing and, and they mean something that's quite more, a bit more important than just something that we just kind of use to, to <coughs> feed ourselves or what have you. In terms of categories of apple, we have, I promise this isn't gonna be like a history lesson, but I thought it'd be interesting. We have generally four categories of apples. I am really hoping, by the way, fingers crossed, that you categorize them in the same way here that we do back at home. I might caveat this with, this is the UK version of it. So you have the sweet apples, which are apples that we can generally eat. We can just pick off the tree and we can eat and they taste lovely, nice and juicy, really crisp. Well, depending on the variety, really crisp. And yeah, they don't taste too bitter or or, or too sour. Um, And then you move into the sharp varieties, and these are some eating apples. So things like really famous Granny Smiths that you get in the supermarket are generally more on the sharp scale. And also uh, the bulk of the eating, sorry, cooking apples sit within this category. So these are apples really that you kind of need to do something with. Add a bit of sugar, of course, um, and cook them before they are pleasant to the palate. And so those are the kind of the, the two categories of main kind of eating apples and cooking apples. And then you move into the bitter sweet and bitter sharp. If you uh, have uh, one of these apples your, on your tree at home and you and you bite into it, you might get some lovely juices as we've been talking about a, sh- a short, short while ago. Um, but there'll be a really kind of sour bitter taste to them, and it ro- really won't be very pleasant experience eating it. Uh, so you probably don't want to be eating those. They can also be uh, upset your tummy a little bit. Because they can just the acid acid levels in them. Um, so that's the bitter sweet, and then you move on to bitter sharp, which is the hero apple when we're making cider. So that's the one that we really want to make cider. And the difference between those four categories, obviously sugar the levels um, and acid levels as well, um, but also tannins and um, pectins and things. So the tannin is actually in the core in the skin, um, and I don't unfortunately couldn't bring any with me because. Of, planes etc but um if i was to have some cider here here in front of you you could generally tell what type or category of apple due to the color of the cider so if it's got a very high tannin level then it will have a darker darker color and if it's got a lower tannin level then it will have a slightly um lighter color unless you bl- unless it's a blended cider which <coughs> means that you'll have all sorts in there um, so these are the kind of the four different categories and Back in Somerset, where I'm from, we have acres and acres and acres of orchards with bitter, sweet, and bitter sharp apples. In people get very excited and try and go scrumping at this time of year and trying to kind of like steal them off the trees, and they get them home and they bite into them and they can't eat them. So yeah, but they, they're they're perfect for juice. And they generally look actually on the front of the book, the um, cover, those apples are cider apples. They're bitter, sweet, and bitter sharp. So they'll be they are amazing colours. I um. We were quite particular with the book that, um, or I was quite particular on the cover of the book that we didn't kind of play with the colouring too much. So that was literally us last September, this time last year. Actually, it was a year ago, yesterday. It came up on my Facebook. Um, they, we went into the orchard and we picked all of these apples off the floor and popped them into this crate and took the picture. And and I said to them, I don't want you to, to mess with the colours at all because I really want the vibrancy of these natural fruits to kind of come through. And they, I feel like it really has. So yeah, that's the four categories. And when we're talking about apples in the kitchen, then we can we have a bit more flexibility than what you do when you're either purely making a cider or you're pu- purely using the apples for eating. So we can play about with some of the sweet apples, some of the sharp apples. You generally won't want to play with the um, cook the uh, bittersweet or bitter sharp. Although when you kind of get to the sweeter. Um, scale of that, you can incorporate that in foods, but you need to cook them quite a bit or add a lot of sugar to them. Um, So the majority of the apples that will feature in the book are mostly sweet and sharp apples. The reason for me writing the book was one, to kind of celebrate my family. They're incredibly knowledgeable. We have this family business that's been there for a very, very long time. It started by my great uncle and uh, my cousins, Jan, her family operate it now. My dad is the head cider maker. So he's in charge of the pressing and the Um, blending of the apples to make the cider so it was part a kind of bit of an ode to them and a bit of a celebration of you know we've just been there for centuries and centuries and we've not moved and we've kind of created this thing but also I wanted to kind of celebrate the versatility of the fruit and I wanted to show that it's not just kind of apple pies and apple crumbles um, or crumb what do you call it here? Crumble? Do you call it crumble? All right, yeah. Crisp. Yeah, that's it. Apple crisp. <laughs> right. It's not just apple, apple pies and apple crisps that you can um, that make with the with this fruit. You can use them a lot in uh, savoury dishes. We're all very familiar with things like pork and cider or pork and apple, which is delicious. But you can also uh, use them a lot in cocktails and drinks and um, and things like I've got a curry recipe in there, which I'd love to have cooked you tonight. But that is uh, influenced by the Caribbean and and also uh, Sri Lanka where they use the quite a sharp apple in curries and the mix of that with the spices is really delicious and I would highly recommend that you you try that one. Uh, it's got coconut in it as well to help mellow the the uh, sharpness a bit. And then also I've got things like salads so obviously we, we're familiar with with that. I wanted to examine When we're looking at the more traditional recipes my publisher was like right well you need to it's fine to kind of go off and exploring and and trying these new recipes with different new new flavors but you were kind of keen on you looking at the traditional recipes as well i was like i can't really include like an apple pie everybody has to make apple pie i can't you know it's very easy to make. So what I did is I did a bit of research and I thought, well, um, who makes the kind of, what's who the most famous place for apple pie? It's obviously this country. So I'm fortunate enough to have some um, some American friends and I kind of had a chat with them. I was like, right, so what is it about apple pie? Why is it so important to you guys? And they were like, well, it's just like, it symbolizes our country and it's just, you know, it's the, the apple pie that we all love. I was like, right, can you share the recipe? Oh, no, 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 no. We can't share our family recipe or my grandma's recipe or mum's recipe. They're all very protective over it. What I did find is I found a recipe for, um, for apple pie that they use in the White House, that they cook in the White House. And I read an interview by the head chef uh, who was there under Obama. And one of his comments was about the, the crust pastry crust that they that they're really keen on and it's got um, nuts in it so I incorporated some hazelnuts into my pastry um, and then I looked at the different varieties that you can cook with and I think over here you tend to use like a Granny Smith or something so something that kind of keeps its shape when it's cooked and doesn't kind of go down to a sauce too much and so I played with different varieties and I incorporated one eating eating apple a Granny Smith-esque apple and also a Bramley apple which I think you have here as well yeah which is a really famous cooking apple incorporated those and I've kind of created this like lovely kind of uh, gooey sauce that um, is featured in, in the thing so yeah there are traditional recipes there are some slightly different ones some with like tahini and curries and all of that but the purpose of it was really to say, look, this is a, there's a broad spectrum of foods you can create with this fruit. When you're at the right time of year and you're buying in season, like super important, then you can you have a you know a whole spectrum of dishes that you can prepare with the with the apples from your tree or at home or whatever. The other thing that I what they wanted me to look at was that they wanted kind of varieties that were available here in the US, in the UK where I'm from, and then were also being published in uh, Australia as well. And I thought, well, that's going to be quite tricky because you know we have very famous varieties in the uk that you are not familiar with here likewise the 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 varieties here and it must be in australia but i did some research and got some friends in those different places to send me pictures of the supermarket shelves and actually i'm not suggesting this is a bad thing or a good thing Can kind of make your own minds up about that but when you look at the shelf fruit and veg aisle in the us versus the uk and australia the apples are actually very similar there are about four or five varieties that you can get in those three countries and now we're talking about the, like the other side of the world okay and um so i kind of wanted to examine why why that is and 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 kind of how these very famous you know galas Braeburns, the golden delicious the red delicious varieties why they're kind of um so synonymous with the supermarkets and and i think it all comes back to what we were talking about originally around the apple just being kind of a really hardy reliable fruit and these varieties have been grown and bread with other varieties to create kind of like these super apples that are just super reliable, hardy, and uh, they can ship them from all over the world and they can land on the shelves and they will be reliable. It doesn't, in my opinion, make, make them the kind of best tasting. So my advice to anybody, if you're, I mean, particularly in this area, I mean, I think in Washington state is kind of like the capital of apples in this country or something, but you've got I, when you're in season so around now get out there find your local growers or local apple orchards or neighbors who have who have trees and just taste them that they come directly off the tree or they've just fallen because the taste is amazing completely different to what you're going to get in the supermarkets that being said it's nice to have apples all all year round so whether it's a good or bad thing I, i'll leave that up to you any questions before i wrap it on
0: what kind of apple do you put in
1: I put eating apples into that but I'm not sure what do you know what variety you use today? Granny Smiths. Smiths, yeah. That tends to be quite yeah, a reliable one. It keeps its shape. It doesn't kind of break up. It's got a very distinctive taste and actually although given what I've just said about supermarkets the flavour of it is very strong and it comes through really well when you add things like flour and stuff to it. So you still get that distinctive apple flavour. It also works really well with um, toffee sauce as well. So there's a there's another recipe in there, a toffee apple cake that I developed, which is kind of like half cake, half pudding. Do you know sticky toffee pudding? And yeah, you got that right, fine. I wanted to develop something a little bit like that. I used those apples in there as well because they just kind of like stood stood up on the road. Any other questions?
0: So I've heard that if you taste a really delicious apple, that if you plant the seed of the apple, you're not necessarily going to get... But you have to graft it yeah and that's just such
1: a weird idea yeah so strange so the great thing about apples and the reason why we have so many different varieties is that they uh, propagate in in kind of a standard way of uh, you know insects will will uh, propagate the um the trees and you'll get uh from two trees you'll get a completely different offspring so you could have like a for example, like a gala and a, and a Cox or something, come together and they'll create a brand new uh, apple. That's quite tricky when you're working in commercial settings because you want some consistency over the apples that you're creating. And um, and so what they'll do is they'll graft graft a tree onto a branch onto the base of a tree um, in order to create a perfectly identical apple tree so that you get it completely consistent. It's an absolute art and it's not actually that difficult. My dad was um, saying the other day, actually, that there is a guy in England who is a kind of pro grafter um, and he has one tree in his orchard that has, and I, I want to say something like 27 different varieties of apple on that tree because of the way he's grafted it and brought it out. So in theory, you can have a tree in your garden, but if you're really careful about how you graft, you can make the tree produce fruit for the entire season. So you can have some really early season fruit on your tree, and then it will just com- it will continue producing fruit until very very late in the season. You know, you're talking about January, February, even. So it's um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. It's really not that difficult to learn how to do. I'm not going to say I know how to do it myself because that's dad's job but he assures me that it's not very difficult and um quite uh i think people get quite obsessed by that and, and want to learn but yeah fascinating how they how they how they grow them commercially yeah so i just wanted to talk to you very briefly at the end just about kind of the a year in a life of an apple and for from our perspective at the farm And because I think it's quite interesting. So we're obviously in season right now. So you're going to see loads and loads of fruit on the trees and falling. The fruit's kind of like doing its thing. And then um, we'll move into winter. And winter is a really fascinating time because, yes, we're pruning. So we're taking off some of the dead wood. Winter is also a time where trees rely really heavily on things like frost. So they uh, rely on very, very cold weather generally um, in temperate climates. In order to fight against disease, so they use the weather as a form of as of kind of cleansing themselves, and that's really important. So we're t- we have this kind of discussion at the moment on a kind of global scale, I suppose, about the environment and the impact that it's having on various things. Well, it's also having an Im- impact on on trees because if we're getting milder winters, where we're not getting such hard frosts, then the trees aren't able to kind of help fight disease. So winter is a really important time and the trees might not look that very pretty, but it's really important for, for kind of cleaning and, and refreshing the trees. And then we going into, into spring and obviously the buds come out. And I don't know if anybody has ever tested uh, playing with apple blossom in the kitchen, but it's delicious. And you get lots of different types. I make a tea, which is in the in the book, which is just an infusion of the uh, of the blossom. But you can also dry it and use it on cakes. It's really delicious on cakes. It has a very kind of well, actually, it depends on the, on the variety. But you can uh, it has a it has a, almost like sometimes like pineapple-y or citrusy um, note to it. Very delicious, and it looks quite pretty as well. So you can use the you can use the blossom. Once we've gone into the growing season, then you kind of like leave the tree to kind of do its thing. You don't want to disturb it too much because it's busy kind of growing that fruit. But what you'll get in... June, which I, I think it's the same here is you'll get something that's known as the June drop and this is absolutely fascinating people just think it's the weather that makes the trees kind of drop their apples which is kind of true but it's the tree making a calculated decision on what it puts its energy into so trees are super super clever they'll know how much moisture is in the ground how much moisture is in the air what the sun's doing how dry it is what's going on and it will just make a decision on what whether it's going to get enough moisture f- uh, to to provide the juice and the energy to grow the apples that it has on its branches on off of the buds and if it makes a decision actually it's quite a dry year I haven't got I don't think I'm gonna have enough energy to to put into the growing these apples then it will drop the excess so that it can focus on creating the perfect fruit. So, which I think is like an amazing strike of nature that it can kind of, the trees can do that. And if you talk to my dad, who's, who's fascinating and knows all about this, he goes waffles on for ages about the intelligence of trees, which, you know, he talks to them. So that's a whole different, um, whole different <laughs> war game. But um, yeah, so that's a really important time for the tree to be kind of determining what uh what this what the season's going to do and how how kind of how, how well it's going to do it's also tends to be that time of year tends to be quite uh, certainly in the uk we'll either have a lot of rain or we'll have a lot of sun and it can be dry wet whatever and it's really important that after that point after it's dropped the leaves that we have enough rainfall and enough sun to really kind of plump up the apples and make sure that that sugar's coming through and that the juice is there um, certainly in cider making and in, in apple juice, we want to make sure that we're getting, um, sorry, when I say cider, I mean hard cider with alcohol. We want to make sure that we're getting enough juice. We're getting kind of big apples with plenty of juices so that when we when we press them and then kind of late into this later into that season, we are just before harvest. Inside a world, we'll go out and we'll start looking at the trees, looking at how much fruit's on them, try and understand how much juice we're likely to get that get for that season because that's got to last us a whole year. And we'll be kind of in at our farm, frantically buying up all of the apples in the local area. And we we have our own orchards at the farm, but my family also go out and they obtain apples from local farmers from small. Uh, you know, people might have just one orchard; they'll buy the apples from that from that orchard, which is so it's providing a great service. Like I said, very very rural. There's a 10 mile, I think it's a 10 mile stretch or 20 mile stretch of road. And there were 21 cider farms on that 10 mile stretch. And that is because where I come from in Somerset, cider, the alcoholic version, formed a fundamental role in, in that area. And that was because we're a very, very, um, like I said, very rural area, but we're also below sea level and we're, a, we're coastal. So what happens when you're below sea level and you're quite coastal and it rains a lot in England, as you probably know, you get floods. It's known as the Somerset Levels. So it's very, very, very flat and it's very peaty. And what would happen years ago is that throughout the winter and most of the spring, the, the land would be flooded, um, which is not great for growing trees. They don't like wet feet. Also, it provides uh, stagnant water. So before we had sanitation and ways of cleansing, uh, cleaning the water and ensuring that it was safe to drink, people would get very ill from drinking unsafe water and it would be quite a quite a drama really and so what people did is they started brewing beer but also making cider and the process of that and the introduction of alcohol etc kills off any nasties and people farmers and landowners would 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 make cider make beer and they would provide it as payment or part payment to laborers and workers and uh, it was a way of people ensuring they have safe hydration hydration and also the landowner or the farmer would going to get their service done you know their labor done we're not sure we think it was probably a bit weaker than what we have now but knowing cider it can there's a big scale of whether it's very alcoholic or not And it could be that it was quite strong. But there was a law in England which has never, ever been changed, and it's still the same today. And that is that if you are a labourer and you work on the land, then you're entitled, by law, to four pints of beer or cider a day. (laughs) So by law, if you're a labourer in the UK... And you are working on the land, you can say to your employer, where's my four pints? Thank you very much per day. The law's never been changed. It's very archaic and they've just never got around to it. So yeah, that's, uh, I thought that was quite funny. So then, well, then once we've kind of got the apples, we're back into the season we're in now. And we'll be pressing. And if you go down to the farm, and I'm sure there'll be farms around here. Um, this is my favorite time of year to be at home because you go into the farm, they've got mounds and mounds and mounds of apples and they're pressing like mad and the smell of the of the apple juice being pressed or the apples being pressed um fills the entire village and it's just such a kind of like i don't know it brings back a lot of memories for me as a kid and being being around there and uh, it's quite a quite an amazing thing yeah so that's very broadly a year in in the life of an apple in somerset any questions yes um,
0: for your curry that you use coconut yes. to kind of like mellow out the sharpness Is mm-hmm. it because it's like really fatty or really sweet like if you want to mellow out something like a granny smith are you looking for something more fatty or more sweet
1: to- i think it's more uh, to uh, play against the acid so something's a bit more alkaline uh will be your friend but then yeah fat will do that i wouldn't i mean, with that curry specifically, I really like the uh, the sharpness of the apple. Um, and so you do want to reserve a bit, like, a bit of that. So generally you'd add like tons of sugar to something to, in order to kind of mellow it down a little bit to put it in a pie, for example. You wouldn't want to do that if you're trying to preserve the slight sharpness, but you want something that will just fight against it a little bit just to kind of make it a bit more palatable. So um, yeah, something you're playing with acids. So the th- yeah, you want to make it more alkaline.
0: Yeah. Aging, aging cider. Do you typically
1: age cider? Do you let it sit? Yeah, so it sits in the, so we have uh, the really old traditional oak vats. Um, They're massive, they're uh, 80,000 pints big, so they're huge great things and the cider sits in there for about 12 months. But once it gets to, that doesn't really kind of affect the alcohol level because it will just kind of like, once you've got it to the alcohol level you want it at, you put it into those oak vats to mature. And all that does is that it just kind of um, mellows the flavor and it'll just sit there and all the flavor will kind of come out and get get a bit stronger. But yeah, it stays there for about a year or up to a year. All right then. Is there any more cake left? Yes. I'm gonna have some. (laughs) Um, What did you think of the cake by the way? Did Did you like it? Okay, good. This oh, is card- cardamom and poppy. and Thank
0: you all again for coming out. Thank you, James, for sharing the Gospel of no Apples No problem. Thank us.
1: you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Many thanks to James Rich for coming all the way from the UK to visit us. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Apple and any other books featured on the Book Larder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of many of the featured books, so be sure to get one of those while they last. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at booklarder. For more information about Book Larder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.